0: Okay, Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus, and this is increment 69 already, Jesus, the Son of God. We're going to be going to Hebrews chapter 3 and dealing with the first six verses there, and also, to we'll be jumping to a very pivotal verse in Hebrews, which is 414, and you'll see at least four reasons for that. Today we'll also be following the many rather than following the money, and we do want to begin with an important announcement, and this is usually met with a lot of enthusiastic response. We are having the treasures for children this year, not missing a beat with that, and cooperation with the Salvation Army here in New Kensington, and you can bring new toys for the children and bring them to the building but first call the church so that someone can be here to receive it and so the church number is on the website i'm sure and that's treasures for children it'll be going on probably until early december and it's going to make a lot of kids day that normally wouldn't have new gifts like that so father we thank you for another opportunity To gaze into the perfect law of liberty, which is your word, and to receive from you grace that results in transformation, that results in peace, that results in joy, and in expectation of a glorious destiny, not only for ourselves, but for all of humanity. So we thank you for this privilege in Christ's name, amen. Let me begin by doing the work of an evangelist. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5 says, In order to fulfill your ministry as a pastor, you must do the work of an evangelist. And here it is. By grace, that's the grace of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the grace of the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of grace. By grace, unconditional, uncontingent, and free, we have been saved. By grace, unconditional, uncontingent, and free, we are being saved. By grace, unconditional, uncontingent, and free, we will be saved to absolute completion. And this is through or on account of the faith, fidelity, and faithfulness of that is not of us, not of ourselves. It is the faith and faithfulness of Jesus Christ, just as the grace is not of us and the salvation is not of us. It's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We were saved on account of his faithfulness. We were saved, and that's in a perfect tense, we are being saved through our participation in his faithfulness. We will be saved in an experience of bodily resurrection and transconfiguration of our bodies by which we will be fully conformed into the image of God's Son, the glorious Christ who is the image of God. That's the work of an evangelist. Now, let me do the work of a teacher on the same paragraph of teaching and expand a little bit with documentation on what I just proclaimed. By grace, the grace of God, Titus 2.11, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 8.9, Philemon 1.25, the grace of the Holy Spirit, Called the Spirit of Grace, Hebrews ten twenty nine, uncontingent, unconditional, and free, we have been saved. Ephesians two eight, we have been saved, by grace, unconditional, uncontingent, and free, we are being saved. The tense also captures the ongoing present in Ephesians two eight, by grace. Unconditional, uncontingent, and free, we are being saved by the way, for free, we could have Hebrews, or rather make that Romans eleven five and six unconditional, uncontingent, and free, we are being saved. That's also again in the ephesians two eight tense by grace uncontingent, unconditional, uncontingent, and free, we will be saved to absolute completion. And that's a combination of Ephesians two eight with Hebrews 7.25. And this is through, or by, or on account of, all of these apply to the preposition used there, on account of the faith, the fidelity, and the faithfulness that is not of us, Again, Ephesians two eight, we're exegeting that passage base, basically. Just as the grace is not of us and the salvation is not of us, it is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, Romans one seventeen, called the righteous one, also Galatians two sixteen, Galatians three twenty two, and Hebrews three one and two. We were saved on account of his faithfulness. That's diapistios. In the Byzantine or majority text, it's diates pistios, the faithfulness. We are being saved in an ongoing present. That's also found in 1 Corinthians one eighteen. To those of us who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. It's also James one twenty one, the engrafted word, the implanted word, which we receive into our deepest being, our human spirits, is able to save the soul. And we're saved in the present through, again, his faithfulness, dia pisteos, his faithfulness, in which we participate, Galatians 2.20, for we live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. We will be saved, in an experience of resurrection and bodily transfiguration, or I like to call it transconfiguration, by which we will be fully conformed to the image of God's Son, Romans 8.29, Philippians 3.20, the glorious Christ who is the image of God, 2 Corinthians four, 4 Colossians 1.15, compared with Hebrews one three which reveals him to be the image or the exact representation of his essence. So the faithfulness through which, by which, and on account of which we have been saved, we are being saved, and will be saved to the point of absolute and glorious completion is the faithfulness of Jesus. It is his faithful obedience. Now, faithfulness and obedience are almost synonyms, they go together throughout Hebrews, they go together throughout Romans, and they are virtually synonymous, though sometimes obedience and faithfulness are slightly distinguished from each other. It is Jesus' faithful obedience to the God of all grace, while in the days of his flesh on earth, which led to his faithful death, far from God, as we've noted in Hebrews 2.9. Suspended between heaven and earth. His faithfulness continues now in two ways. One, his faithfulness continues in his faithful priestly intercession for us in heaven. And secondly, his faithfulness continues in his house, which is his people. So it says in Hebrews 7.25 that he is able to save completely those who come to him because he always lives to make intercession for them. Now we might call that phrase, those who come to him, a glitch, because it looks like there's a lot of human action involved here. But those who come to him are those who've been drawn to him. No one... And this is where a lot of people left Jesus and stopped following him anymore when he said things like this. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him or her. And so no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws them to him. That's John 6, 44. You see, it's a matter of the grace of God. Hebrews is, as we've said many times before, about completion. We could even title the whole homily of Hebrews about completion or regarding completion. We saw that in 56 of the canonical psalms in the Septuagint, each of which began with estotelos, regarding completion. You see, it's all about grace bringing us to completion. The great salvation, Hebrews 2, 3, that was wrought in and by Jesus is a complete salvation, complete in degree and universal in its inclusion. It can easily be and rightly be said that by Jesus we have been saved through his faithfulness. His name means salvation, Yahoshua. Yahweh saves. So we can't say enough about the faithfulness of Jesus. So we may as well simply participate in it by the spirit of grace. For the faithfulness of the Son of God, as it's put in Galatians 2.20, continues in God's house or his people. We can experience in some meaningful measure, therefore, and that's what John's gospel is all about, we can experience in some meaningful measure the life and salvation that will and does already characterize future world, a world which has been subjected to Jesus and in which all of the angels of God worship him. Hebrews six, and that's connected to Psalm ninety seven seven we came to him, therefore, if you can say, I came to Jesus, you came to him because the Father drew you to him john six forty four we came to Jesus because it was granted to us that's a matter of grace by the father john six sixty five It's always been notable to me that in six sixty six many turned back at that point and followed him no no more. People don't like all the props kicked out from underneath them and have salvation be purely, without contingency, without condition, and totally free, the grace of God. There's a lot of evangelists that won't tell you that, so their good news is probably fake news. We belong to a universal community in formation, to the all whom the son draws to himself in john 12:31 and 32 the father and the son are one in john 10:30 so they're one in the act of drawing us to himself so my prayer is may the father who granted us to come to his son and really the prayer of the writer of hebrews is that he would permit us to go on to completion in him, in Hebrews 6.1. That's talking about the present time. We now continue, therefore, in our line-by-line exegesis of Hebrews 3. And this is my translation so far with a few bracketed comments, Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Therefore, sanctified siblings, participants in a heavenly calling, carefully consider the apostle and archpriest of our confession, our confession being what we acknowledge as ultimate reality, Jesus. Verse 2, who was faithful to God who appointed him. Notice that, who was faithful to God who appointed him. As also Moses was, and it doesn't have the word faithful here, but the ellipsis demands the insertion of that word. We'd say, as also Moses was faithful in all God's house for he Jesus verse 3 for he Jesus now Jesus also is not found there by name but the relative pronoun demands the filling in of of the name Jesus. That's what translations do, but it's not in the Greek. The Greek simply says, for he, meaning Jesus, is considered worthy of greater glory. Please notice glory and honor as they fit in here. He is considered worthy of greater glory than Moses. Now this is saying something, and I'm going to stop just for a second. When Stephen was speaking in Acts 7:11, he showed that many of the Jews who were accusing him of preaching a false gospel were going against, quote, Moses and God. God and Moses. Moses was put on a virtual par with God. And the Hebrews writer is saying someone actually deserves to be put on a par with God. And it's not Moses, but Jesus. And so again, verse 3, For he, Jesus, is considered worthy of greater glory... Than Moses, inasmuch as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. In verse 4, to be sure, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God verse 5. Now Moses on the one hand was faithful as a servant and the word for servant there is therapon, T H E R A P O N. Therapon, and that comes from the Septuagint translation of Numbers chapter 12 and verse 7. And it's only used in here, in this place in the New Testament only because it's quoting Numbers 12:7. About Moses. Now remember, this word for servant is unique about him, Therapon. It's not doulos for slave, it's not diakonos for deacon or servant, it is Therapon. It isn't pais, which is slave or child slave, it is Therapon. And so again, verse 5 Now Moses, on the one hand, was faithful as a servant, Therapon. In all his, again, God isn't put here, but he has to be inserted in the ellipsis, the relative genitive of possession. So we would have to translate it in all his, that is God's house, for a testimony to what would be spoken in the future. That is, we're referring here to Moses' faithfulness was a testimony to what God would speak in a son in the future. Verse 6, but Christ as a son, Huios. Now here is the real distinction. Moses is called Therapon, Jesus is called Huios. The distinction here is really between a servant in the house and the son over the house. Remember, we're dealing with oxasis here, which Aristotle would call amplification. It is the amplifying of the prestige of Jesus over Moses, who actually had great prestige. So again, verse 6 reads this way. But Christ as a son over his house, God's house, whose house we are. Now, I'm going to make a translation here and step out. And bravely translate this word are, we are, and put it as demonstrate ourselves to be. We demonstrate ourselves to be God's house if only we hold fast to the boldness and boast of our hope. What makes a person look like and demonstrate that he or she is God's house? The bold boast of our hope, and that's a hope for future world, a hope of a new creation, the new creation of all things. We hold this fast. We hold this to ourselves. We hold it before the world. We hold it forth as a word of life to the world. And this is what demonstrates us to be the house of God. So in Hebrews 3, 1 to 6, the PT here is dealing with Jesus in the context of a comparison, oxasis, with Moses. This comparison is with the intention of magnifying or amplifying the prestige of Jesus for reasons that we'll be seeing down the road. As we've already seen, no attempt is made by the pastor to degrade Moses here. There's no attempt in Hebrews to degrade Judaism. There's not even in any attempt to degrade the old priesthood or even the old covenant. And so to see Hebrews and to see much of the New Testament as so-called supersessionist is not the way to perceive the New Testament. It isn't the kind of supersessionism that people say that the church is the new Israel and the old Israel is ruled out. God has nothing to do with Israel after the flesh. They won't be saved, etc. All that nonsense. And so, as we've seen, no attempt is made by the pastor to degrade Moses in this oxasis. In fact, if you read this carefully, both Moses and Jesus are said to be Faithful. It isn't a matter here of Moses' bad, Jesus' good, or Moses' unfaithful, Jesus' faithful. It's rather a matter of Moses being great and worthy of glory and honor, but Jesus being still greater and deserving of even more glory and honor. And so I think it can be noticed here that the words glory and honor, that's doxe, d o x e, pay close attention to that word, doxe, d o x e. Sometimes it comes out as doxa, d o x a. Doxe, doxe kai time, time is t i m long e. Doxa, doxe kai time, glory, doxe, and honor, time. They are first mentioned together in what we've called our key verse for the series, where we see Jesus in Hebrews 2 9, in which we have a quotation of Psalm 8 6 with respect to Jesus, glory and honor. These words find their way into a comparison with Moses. We see Jesus crowned with doxe kai time glory and honor. Glory and honor find their way into this passage, too, in the comparison with Moses. So it's worthy of note that these two words, which are both brought into this passage, have some very important interest with regard to another reason why it's important for us to study Hebrews today. And I'm going to get into this in subsequent messages. One of the main reasons that it's important to study Hebrews is that we live in a culture where verbs like doxing, d-o-x-i-n-g, trolling, canceling, are used, all of which are related to shame or heaping shame on other people in order to elevate oneself or elevate one's cause or one's candidate. And so doxay, and dox are both interestingly put together in this, in, in my words, the way I'm going to put this, because we live in a time of a culture of shame and honor. And the whole point of Jesus' crucifixion that we're going to find out in Hebrews 12 is that he despised the shame. That means he thought so little of the shame that he virtually disregarded all the shame that would be connected with his crucifixion, because of his obedience to the Father, was so radical and so great that he despised the shame. There are many people who put so much stock in the shame that they might have heaped on them for their faith in Christ that they shrink back from their faith in Christ, or at least from their confession Of Christ when they're put on the spot. But that's all coming down the road. But it is interesting that, and of course, there's no real intention here in the scriptures to match doxa with a present current word of an almost colloquialism called dox, but I'm doing it in order for purposes of our study. So it's worthy of note that the word for glory in the Greek is doxa, when one of the words that's currently in vogue in our culture for exposing someone, often with and mostly with malevolent intention or publicly shaming them, is doxing. And this makes me think of Philippians 3.18-19, where Paul describes the many enemies of the cross of Christ, whose glory, and he would put that today in what we call air quotes, doxa, whose glory, doxa, is really in their shame. In other words, those who glory in the shaming of others are in reality glorying in their own shame. It's not only true in social media. News media often dedicates much of its time to shaming someone rather than simply reporting the objective news. News isn't worth watching if it's lost its objectivity. And much of our news media has lost its objectivity today. And it's related to shaming. And I was commenting the other night, I saw some men shaming a political candidate. And so I called those men mean girls. Because they are, they're mean girls. But then I thought, wow, I'm shaming them, so maybe I should repent. Anyways, let's go on. Doxa is in their shame. Those who glory in the shaming of others are in reality glorying in their own shame, which is not only a present reality, but the possibility of a future reality of being ashamed when Jesus appears in 1 John 2.28. The Bible doxes God. You can also dox somebody by researching and bringing forth their identity without a malevolent purpose. So the Bible doxes God's son entirely without malicious intent and exposes his identity to be Jesus, not to bring shame on the name, but glory and honor. Now we're going to follow that line of thinking and reasoning deep into our study of Hebrews, Lord willing, but not today. It is notable here that Moses is mentioned 11 times in Hebrews. And never, repeat never, in a negative light. And this is not because the author wants to be hagiographical. A hagiographical means that saints or other people that you admire and historical figures are presented in a in an aura, an unrealistic aura of piety where none of their faults are revealed or magnified. The author doesn't really want to be hagiographical here, that is to present Moses with an unrealistically hallowed aura because he was a sinner, but rather to show that Moses is duly regarded to have honor and glory for his faithfulness. And that's true even in the majority view of the Scripture and in God's own estimation. And so when God honors somebody, I'd be kind of afraid to speak shamefully of them. This is brought out no more clearly than in the, the passage of Scripture, which is alluded to in Hebrews 3.2, a very important allusion to, and partial quotation, Numbers 12.7. Keep that in the frontal lobe and keep that in your memory. That Moses was "quote faithful in all God's house" is not just the opinion of the writer of Hebrews in three two. It is the assessment of God Himself on Moses. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the speaker in Numbers twelve seven who says. My servant, Therapon Moses, is faithful in all my house. God said that. It's also the divine viewpoint that is reflected in Numbers 12.3, where the scriptural testimony, oftentimes scripture speaking, is God speaking. The scriptural testimony is this, now the man Moses was extremely humble, meaning gentle and mild, more than all the people on the earth. Now you don't picture Moses like that when you see the Ten Commandments, you don't picture him as gentle and mild, but that's exactly what he was, meaning he wasn't going around defending himself all the time, boasting about himself all the time. His view was always Godward. And so, even though he was a very strong and forceful man and prophet of God, his heart was gentle and mild, and more than any other person on earth at the time. The scriptural testimony is equivalent to the personal testimony of God on Moses. In fact, the scripture, again, is often personified so that instead of saying it says, it says he says. The scriptures personified and sometimes the subject of personal divine speech. God says Moses was the most humble, gentle, mild man on the face of the earth. Now when God has a servant who is gentle and humble and you mess with the servant, God is more fierce to defend a humble servant than anyone else. God spoke of Moses as faithful in all my house. And he was doing that while defending Moses from Miriam, his sister, and Aaron, whose brother, who were bold enough to speak against Moses because of his marriage to an Ethiopian woman. And so I find it rather touching to see Yahweh come to the defense of his servant Moses, as he did in Numbers 12, by taking Miriam and Aaron to task. And because Miriam wasn't quick on the draw to repent, she got a little case of leprosy that made her as white as snow for a week. So I'm reminded of Jesus in this, also Yahweh. And his defense of John, the Immerser, John sent a messenger to him and said, Are you the one or should we look for another? You can imagine the crowd saying, Well, John is weakened here. Look, he doesn't even know if Jesus is the right messenger. If he's the right Messiah, he doesn't even know. So they began probably to start thinking down on John the Immerser, also known as the Baptist. But Immerser is far better. So Jesus defended John the Immerser when he revealed weakness. Jesus said to the crowd, reading no doubt that they were going to think negatively of him, this is what Jesus said to the crowd. Among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist, John the Immerser, has ever come on the scene. How's that one? That's Jesus. That's Yahweh defending John just as Yahweh defended Moses and that's Matthew eleven eleven. no one greater than John that's my estimate says God that sounds a little bit like Moses was more humble than all the people on the earth same Yahweh speaking same God of Israel after all Yahweh is the speaker in both cases however in John's case Jesus added an interesting little addendum he said, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, we can make a big case for this. Guess who the least in the kingdom of heaven is? Jesus. He made himself the slave of all in Matthew twenty, twenty-seven, and 28, gave his life as a ransom for all. So, he is humbly saying that he is greater than John. You see, there is a comparison being made here without demeaning John. There's a comparison being made of someone greater than even the greatest man born of a woman up to that time, up to the time of Jesus, just as there is a comparison made of someone with more glory and honor than Moses, of whom God said, he is faithful in all my house, and he is more humble than anyone on earth. When Jesus said, come to me, I am humble, he was then the most humble man on earth. All the earth. So, as we're learning here, Jesus, the least in the kingdom of heaven, is greater than John just as he is greater than Moses. Moreover, Jesus now and forever has the record of being the most humble man on earth and in heaven. God, who said of Moses, My servant Moses, now follow this carefully, is faithful in all my house said of Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God is pleased with his son. And in Hebrews eleven six, God is pleased with faith. God is pleased, therefore, by his son's faith, fidelity, and faithfulness wherever and in whomever it's found. Servant, And Son, therefore, are distinct from one another. Servant, Therapon, and Son, Huios, distinct from one another. And they're here to show the superior glory of Jesus the Son over Moses the Servant. Now, the writer here, if you read the Greek, you get all kinds of treasures that you normally wouldn't get by reading just the English. The writer carefully uses the word therapon, T-H-E-R-A-P-O-N, long O, for servant rather than pais, P-A-I-S, which is used for Jesus in Isaiah 42, 1 and 52, 13, or doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S, for slave in Isaiah 53, 11, which is used of the righteous servant or Jesus Christ, which is also used in Matthew twenty twenty seven to 28. Both doulos and pais are used to describe Jesus, God's son, but never theropon. So therefore, the writer is careful to use the word theropon, God's righteous slave, also God's son. By whose experience of suffering and death he justified the many, and the many means all. Follow the many. Don't follow the money, follow the many in Scripture. Isaiah fifty three eleven. Don't follow the money, that's what God tells preachers and tells all Christians, Hebrews thirteen five, compared with 1 Timothy six five, six, nine, and to preachers first Peter five two don't follow the money follow the many isaiah 53:11 speaks of the many that are justified by my righteous slave matthew 20:28 20, jesus said right after saying let the greatest among you be the slave of all he 's referring back to isaiah fifty three eleven so follow the many from isaiah fifty three to twenty twenty eight because he said, "This is the Son of man. He came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. Follow the many into romans five nineteen and you'll find that his act of obedience led to the many being considered righteous, but follow the many into Hebrews 2.10 where he talks about many sons and daughters being brought to glory. But then we can backtrack into 5.18 of Romans which says that all are given justifying life. And so the all equals the many or the many equals the all as we've seen many, many times before. And so follow the many to 2.10 and to 1 Timothy 2.6 where the one who said, I give my life as a ransom for the many, Paul says of him, he gave his life as a ransom for all. Also Titus 2.11, the grace of God, what we began with, has appeared salvation for all of humankind. And so the many leads to the all. And that's universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, also known as the universal impact of the cross of Christ. So for upcoming preachers, there's an idea for a message for you. You can steal it, and you can have it. Follow the many, not follow the money. Consider Yahweh's defense of Moses, therefore, and Jesus' defense of the immerser. People who are unassuming, modest, and gentle in the service of the Lord are the most fiercely defended by the Lord of the armies when they're attacked. While faithfulness may be the most sought-after quality of a steward or a trustee, humility must be the most rare quality of those in leadership during this evil age. Again, Moses is mentioned 11 times now, if we flex our muscle, we send blood through the rest of the body of Hebrews. He's mentioned in 3.2, 3.3, 3.5, 3.16. He's mentioned in 7.14, mentioned in 8.5, 9.19, 10.28, 11.23, 11.24, and 12.21. You'll see all this in print. He's mentioned in all those verses in Hebrews and never in a negative light. Likewise, Jesus, the name, is mentioned ten times alone in Hebrews, just Jesus kind of standing alone, showing that this entire homily, throughout the entire homily, the amplification of Jesus' honor and glory, remember when Moses and Elijah disappeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, who stood there? Jesus only. Jesus is being magnified and his glory amplified through this whole thing. And so, the 11 mentions of Moses in Hebrews is not meant, on the other hand, to give Moses the edge over Jesus either, because son, S-O-N, or huios, or the phrase, the Son of God, with particular reference to Jesus, is also used 11 times in Hebrews. In 1-2, twice in one five, one eight. 5 Three six four fourteen, which we 're going to finish on today, five 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 eight seven three seven twenty eight and ten twenty nine now i 've got to make a slight emendation of something from before because the name Jesus does not appear again does not appear in the Greek text of hebrews three three and we counted it before as appearing there. It does appear in the English text of many translations, but not in the Greek text. So I have to amend my list of ten references to Jesus standing alone, as it were, in Hebrews. The name Jesus is not found in the Greek text of Hebrews three three. It is in many English texts because it's obvious that Jesus is the referent here. However, because the name Jesus is not specifically found there, we have to amend our list of ten. It is not now, as I gave it before, 2, 9, 3, 1, 3, 3 6, 20, 7, 10, 19, 12, 2, 12, 24, 13, 12, and 13, 20. Instead, we should replace our reference in 3, 3 with 4, 14. Because though Jesus is called the Son of God there, his name is still alone as it is in hebrews 13:20 where he is called our lord jesus jesus again appearing as the last word in that verse so our amended list of 10 appearances of the name jesus alone is now hebrews 2:9 3:1 4:14 i want to emphasize that verse today as we close 6:20 7:22 10:19 12:2 1224, 1312, and 1320. You can play the numbers on that all day long if you want to. We did a little, but I'm not going to do it a lot because I don't find it that interesting. And three more times it is Jesus is used in connection with the fuller name plus title, Jesus the Christ, or Jesus Christ. That's the name plus title, Jesus Christ. Three times there ten ten, thirteen, eight, and thirteen twenty one. So I should have known better than to use the English text to count these references to Jesus' name. The translators were not wrong, though, to place the name Jesus there in three because it might otherwise be difficult to determine whether Jesus or Moses is the subject there. In any case, one verse contains both Jesus and the Son of God, Jesus and the Son of God, together. And as such, it pertains to both lists, the list of 10 of Jesus, the list of 11 of the Son. That verse, again, is Hebrews 4.14. Remember it because it's a pivotal verse. It's what we call a key verse in all of Hebrews. Because of this, we may have to put Hebrews 4.14 in a list of pivotal key verses for this homily. In fact, it really starts off an important section. Here's what Hebrews 4.14 sounds like in my translation so far. Therefore, having a great arch priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, that's the title of today's message, Yesun ton huyon tu theu, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Now, notice four things about this. This verse is distinguished for many reasons, but we'll give four to start with. There's probably 24, but four. First, it begins a new section of the homily or the sermon called Hebrews or the discourse. Second, it has the first use of the adjective megas, M-E-G-A-S, megas, great, to describe our arch-priest. Megas is used again in Hebrews 10.21, but there it says simply, quote, we have a great priest. doesn't say arch-priest. simply says great priest. has great, but then it has priest only. And only in 4.14 does it have the full title Great Arch-Priest. In ten twenty one the author adds a descriptive clause though over the house of God. We have a great priest over the house of God. So notice that word house, so prevalent in Hebrews three one to six because of an echo of first Samuel two thirty five is still relevant when we flex our muscles and send some blood through the rest of the body of this epistle and get all the way to 10.21. In 10.21, the author adds the descriptive clause over the house of God, this keeping the idea of the house alive that we'll get to in subsequent messages, an idea that's introduced in Hebrews 3 as an echo of 1 Samuel 2.35. Third thing about Hebrews two four fourteen. Hebrews 4.14, The two essential elements in this whole epistle, exposition and exhortation, coalesce or meet in 4.14 at a kind of crossroads. Crossroads is a great song, by the way, by Eric Clapton. It was first sung by a blues singer. We have a a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens. You know what that is? That's the sum of the exposition in Hebrews. The main thing he wants to say by exposition in Hebrews is, we have a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens. And let's hold fast our confession. The second half of the verse is the sum of the exhortation element of Hebrews so far. But the PT has a lot more to say, to say the least. And in Hebrews 5, 11 to 14, he tells us all, I wonder if you're ready for it. And then he even says, I doubt it. And so he pulls us up short and screams in our face a little bit, and I love it. Fourth fourth thing about Hebrews 4.14, as we noted, the identity of Jesus the Son of God having been doxed without malicious intent has exposed him as our great archpriest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, who is also called, as we noted, Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ. Now, having come to Hebrews 2020, 20, and I'm closing, moving to a close now. Having come to Hebrews 2020 20, by way of John's gospel all those years ago, in 2010 to 2012, all those years ago, we studied John. I couldn't help think of the whole reason for the writing of the fourth gospel, which the author gives himself. It's summed up in John twenty thirty one, And I'm tweaking the translation for it because nine years later, we've come to some new insights that have changed the translation slightly of John twenty thirty one. It goes like this, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have the life of the coming age even now in his name. So the distribution of the name Jesus alone and of Jesus as the Son of God throughout the text of this sermon reveals the main theme of Hebrews. And it's not some sociological ecclesiastical Or religious subject. It's Jesus. He is the subject. Capital S-U-B-J-E-C-T. He is the subject of actions. That are both human and divine. Apostolic and priestly. He is the subject of the action of a priest. As the offerer. That's his action. And as the sacrifice as offered. And that's his Passion. it should be noted again here that in Hebrews 3.3 3, there appear both glory and honor in that order Jesus is considered by God to be worthy of greater glory doxa just as the builder of a house has greater honor time than the house itself we'll be looking at that concept next time maybe these words, glory and honor, then look back to Hebrews 2:9, where it says, "But we see Jesus, who was made a little for a little while inferior to angels, so that far from God he would taste death for everyone, crowned with glory, doxa, and honor, Time, because of the suffering." death Jesus is the subject of Hebrews who both suffered and died in his passion and who is in action even now as our great archpriest interceding for us and even coming to our aid and he is also the object of the perception of the eyes of our heart we see Jesus. And Father, may this become a reality to us. And only you can transform us by a radical focus on Jesus. Only you can focus our attention away from all that's happening at this juncture of history, in this really crazy time of human history, and focus our attention on Jesus. As we come upon an election in our nation, the United States of America, we think of Psalm 118.9. I always think of this in election years, Father, that we do not put our trust in princes, governors, presidents, senators, judicial characters, but we put our trust in the Lord. Keep our focus and keep our trust in our Lord Jesus Christ as we continue to participate willingly in that which gives you great pleasure, and that's the Son's own faithfulness. Bless the project that's underway even now called Treasures for Children, and may it bring great joy to many little children in the upcoming holiday season. We thank you, Father, for this. We present ourselves afresh to you, committing our spirit to you, our soul to you, presenting our body to you, and giving you our heart that we may be taught of you. In Jesus' name, amen.